There they'd be, every Thursday afternoon, walking in solemn silence around the pyramid in the centre of the square. The mothers of the Plaza de Mayo started their vigil in Buenos Aires in the late 1970s to protest against the ruling military junta who they blamed for the disappearance of their children. They wore white headscarves, symbolising the nappies of their lost sons and daughters. A generation later, Argentinians fighting for abortion rights paid tribute to the mothers by also wearing headscarves. They chose a new colour, green. Last June, green bandanas, t-shirts and banners filled streets and squares farther north in the United States. American activists had taken up the colour of their Argentinian counterparts, fighting for abortion rights in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what has changed after the end of Roe vs Wade? And what will happen next in the fight over abortion access? It's a year since the Supreme Court upended abortion access in America. When the opinion in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization was handed down on June 24, 2022, it overturned the right to an abortion and put the decision back in the hands of states. America has been left with a patchwork of different abortion policies. So far, what difference has the ruling actually made? With me to discuss the aftereffects of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade are Charlotte Howard in New York and Idris Kaloon in Washington. Idris, I don't really need to ask how you're doing today because we're both in Washington together and last night we were at a party at the British Embassy to celebrate the King's coronation where I had to restrain you from singing revolutionary songs. Yeah, we were there to celebrate the coronation of your king. And as a loyal subject, uh, you had to appear at the British Embassy for that. Can I ask more about that? Were there toasts about King Charles? What what went down? What does it mean to celebrate the king's coronation in Washington? It was also his official birthday, which is nowhere near his real birthday, um, which the ambassador explained was to avoid the possibility of it raining. Um, and of course, it was completely soggy uh, in fitting fitting English fashion. Charlotte, how are you doing? What's going on in New York? I think I had the opposite evening as you two. If you were doing English things, I was at Little League practice, which was fantastic. I'm looking forward to talking about Dobbs. Last year, when the decision was issued from the Supreme Court, I was in remote Alaska without any access to cell service. So when I emerged, the world had changed. And a year later, the effects of that ruling really are substantive. It's not something that takes a decade to play out to feel its impact. It's had a huge effect on women's access to abortion and healthcare in the past year. So I'm looking forward to discussing it. Yeah, that's right. It has had a big effect. And also, we're still waiting for some other big Supreme Court decisions to come down on affirmative action and a few other things. And when that happens, we will talk about it on the podcast. Let's start with the Dobbs ruling, though, and the effects it's had. Idris, you've been digging into the most recent numbers and the best source of data on this. What have the 
practical effects of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade been? They were a bit smaller than I thought they would be. So to get some context, I spoke to Dr. Ushma Upadhyay, uh, who co-chairs a project called WeCount, which tries to track the number of abortions actually taking place in America. So they've been counting before the Dobbs decision and after. And uh, when they looked at the data from July 2022 to March of this year, they believe that 25,000 fewer women have been able to get an abortion than uh, in the months before Dobbs, which is a drop of about 3.5%. I asked her whether, when you break down the numbers, you see that states with more liberal laws are making up a lot of the shortfall in states that have brought in tougher bans. We are seeing massive drops in the South and Midwest, particularly where states have banned abortion outright altogether. We've seen 80,000 fewer abortions in those states that have banned abortion or severely restricted abortion. But then when we look at the states that have allowed abortion to remain legal and broadly accessible, we're seeing a total of 56,000 more abortions. And so the increases in those states that have continued to allow abortion care, they're not compensating for the overall losses that we're seeing in the states that have banned abortion. So many people in states that have banned abortion are unable to travel to make those long distances. In parts of Texas and Louisiana, we're talking about an eight-hour or more trip, and that's a multiple-day trip for so many people. And it's just... Those distances and the costs involved in a long trip like that really put abortion care out of reach. And one of the things that you can't track is the number of people who do live in states like Texas and Louisiana who might still be getting abortions without resorting to the formal healthcare sector, right? The medications that are available make it relatively easy to do compared with what might have been available in previous decades. How much can you say or do we know about whether the number of people who are using it might have changed since the Dobbs decision. Yes, you're correct. We're not able to estimate the number of people who are self-managing their abortions. So we know when we think about the 25,000 fewer people, we know that some of them are going to order medications online from overseas or get them through Mexico or some other way. We won't really know the breakdown until we get birth data from about one year from now, from the 2023 data. And just to jump on something you said previously, that some states have seen surges in in the number of of women traveling to obtain abortions, and one of them in particular was Florida. What's going to happen now that Florida's law has changed to a six-week limit on abortion? Florida is the state that saw the largest surges in the country, the largest number of people traveling from banned states throughout the South to Florida. Illinois was second, um, and North Carolina was third. North Carolina, we're expecting to see a 12-week ban in being enacted soon, and then Florida is also a gestational ban. So Together, if those laws are enacted, we're going to see huge drops in the monthly number of abortions because that area, South Carolina, is another state that's considering bans. They have already considered and another one may be enacted soon. So I am really concerned about abortion access for people in the Southeast because those are the states that are people's only hope to get health care. I guess that leads into my next question, which is what do you expect to happen in the year from now 
So we're seeing a lot of mobilization among practical support groups, abortion funds, donors, but we know that these private efforts are just not sustainable. I mean, I think that these efforts are making somewhat of a difference. I think that that 25,000 number, we were expecting for that number to be much higher. And I do think it's because so many people are mobilizing. A year from now, the number of people being able to access care will slowly decline because the concerted efforts are, uh, it's just not possible for them to remain sustainable for so long. So we've seen that there's been a slight decline in the net number of abortions, but has something changed about the kind of abortions that are going on after the Dobbs decision? I think that the clinics in these states like Kansas, Illinois, North Carolina, they are seeing people later and later in pregnancy, and they tend to be sicker, have more health issues. And that is another consequence. We don't have the data in the We Count report yet. Uh, We're hoping that we can get a hold of this data, but this is what we're hearing from providers, that the patients that they're seeing in person tend to be at later gestations. And we know that the earlier people can get their abortions, the safer it is, the less complex it is, and the cheaper it is. And so I think that consequence alone, even though people are getting their abortions, the fact that they're getting them later may be overlooked by these numbers. So Charlotte, a really good overview there from Dr. Padier of what has happened in practice. Many fewer abortions in the south and southwest of the U.S., an increase in states where abortion remains legal. But if you sum, you know, the difference there, it it doesn't come to zero. There's a net decrease in the number of abortions over the past year. And it sounds like some bigger changes will happen once those laws in Florida and North Carolina really take effect. Right. So you have this staged impact where when the court issued its ruling, there were nine states that had trigger laws, so had anticipated a change in the court's opinion on this and had bans that immediately went into effect. Those states included Alabama, Arkansas, Kentucky, but also South Dakota, Utah. The Utah decision is being challenged in court. But then after that, there have been many further restrictions put in place to the list of states that now have bans. You'd add Idaho, West Virginia, Mississippi, Tennessee. So now there are 13 states. And then, as you say, there are other restrictions that have only recently been signed, including the six-week ban in Florida. So it's really been quite a frenzy of activity across the state level. And I agree with you. It's interesting to look at the numbers as we just heard, because the net decline is clearly cause for celebration among those who oppose abortion and cause for despair among those who support access to it. Idris, you said a little bit earlier that overall the change was smaller than you expected. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, so there are numbers which track all legal abortions that are uh, obtained through the health sector show a 3.5% decline in the nine months after Dobbs versus the nine months before. And importantly, if you look at their data, they have 
kind of definitionally uh, zero abortions taking place in states like Louisiana or Kentucky, the number of abortions taking place in those states is not really going to be zero. Women are obtaining abortions in those states. And a lot of the time they're doing that through the use of medication, abortion, which makes things easier, but it's not being captured by the official data. So the argument made by pro-choice campaigners before the Dobbs decision that overturning Roe versus Wade would not decrease the number of abortions that happen, it would just make them less safe, seems to be true. I think if you count in the abortions we can't measure, it's arguable, it's within reason to think that the number has possibly even increased over the DOPS uh, period. So obviously, if a nationwide ban were to be put in place, you would actually see a decrease. But it is interesting that the combination of states having these different policies and the availability of a relatively safe medication means that uh, you might not have seen the kind of effect that that people were warning about. And I'll be interested to see, we won't know for a while yet, whether or not the total number of births has changed, whether maternal mortality has gone up or down. But those were also important things that people want to keep an eye on as well. And it's important to note here that the effects of overturning Roe v. Wade aren't just limited to how many abortions take place in America every year, right? Right. So there are some medical conditions that require an abortion to stabilize the health of a woman. So ectopic pregnancy or preeclampsia with severe features. And so when there is such a medical emergency, what do you do in a state that bans that abortion? There's a federal law that says that hospitals are required to stabilize the health of a patient if they participate in Medicare, the federal health program for the elderly. So that's basically all hospitals, right? And the Department of Health and Human Services last year issued guidance to clarify that federal law to protect the health of a patient in a hospital takes precedence over a state ban on abortions. But Texas has sued HHS over that. HHS has sued Idaho over its ban. And you see the confusion about this playing out, not yet really in maternal mortality data, but in surveys of OBGYNs. So if you look at national polling of doctors who are taking care of women they say that 20% of them have felt constraints on their ability to provide care for miscarriages or other medical emergencies. And that number goes up to 40% in states where abortion is banned. And if you look in those same states where there are severe abortion restrictions, about half of doctors say that they can't practice medicine within the standard of care. And so that's the kind of effect that's a bit harder to measure as Idris says, but is certainly worth keeping an eye on. And I think it's worth taking the word of those doctors seriously as they describe their ability to do their job, which is to protect the health of women who see them. Okay, so the collection of data gives us a you know, fairly accurate, we think, picture of what's going on now. But it's not like the full effect of Dobbs, the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, has been felt yet, because there are still a lot of laws that are working their way through the courts and will do over the next year or so. That's something we'll talk about in a little bit. We'll also go back to when states were making their own abortion laws before Roe versus Wade in a moment. But first, we've got another favour to ask you. If you filled out one of our listener surveys recently, thank you very much for that. We find your responses and feedback really useful. We have a new survey, which would be super helpful for us if you would be kind enough to fill out. It'll take 
take just a few minutes and we'd really like to hear from you whether you filled out the previous one or not. So please go to economist.com slash podcast survey. That's economist.com slash podcast survey for that. Thank you to everyone who's done that already. And please do consider taking a minute to do it if you haven't. A roller coaster ride was prescribed, smelling turpentine fumes. A hypnotist from Berkeley claimed that he could hypnotize me into an abortion over the telephone yet. In 1966, Sherry Finkbein addressed the Conference on Abortion and Human Rights in California. A skydiver offered me the thrill of my life and a miscarriage as well. (sighs) Finkbein was a children's TV presenter and minor celebrity and in the early 60s had unsuccessfully tried to get an abortion after accidentally taking thalidomide. This caused a minor scandal, and she shared with the conference the bizarre advice people wrote to her with. A doctor from New York offered to do the operation for $1,500 in an airplane, thereby out of the state's jurisdiction, he said. Fickbein eventually aborted her pregnancy in Sweden. A year after Finkbein regaled the San Francisco audience, California became the third state in America to liberalize its abortion law. By 1880, pretty much every state in the United States had a law against abortion. Dr. Alicia Gutierrez-Romine is the author of From the Back Alley to the Border, a book about the criminalization of abortion in California. For nearly a century, abortion had only been allowed in the state if a woman's life was at risk. The Therapeutic Abortion Act also allowed abortions up to the 20th week of pregnancy in the case of rape or incest, or if the mother's physical or mental health was at stake. The lawmakers who backed it were following the advice of California doctors. The Therapeutic Abortion Act really was this attempt to find a middle ground and to ensure that the abortion law was in line with best practices of medicine. It's an attempt to recognize that There are other reasons why a woman might need an abortion that don't necessarily mean she is going to die or or be in a terrible risk. Two decades later, President Ronald Reagan's views on abortion were clear. We are a nation of idealists, yet today there is a wound in our national conscience. America will never be whole as long as the right to life granted by our Creator is denied to the unborn. For the rest of my time, I shall do what I can to see that this wound is one day healed. But the governor who signed California's Liberal Abortion Act into law in 1967 was Ronald Reagan. Alicia Gutierrez-Romine again. It is really surprising to, I always make sure to mention if I'm talking about the liberalization of California's abortion laws, that it was Ronald Reagan at the time who, who kind of is this opening wedge into that. Reagan later said that signing the bill was a mistake, and some believe he only didn't veto it because he knew the legislature would override him. But Gutierrez-Romain says that Governor Reagan did believe, to an extent, in abortion rights. He compares a woman's ability to terminate a pregnancy for her own health and safety He compares that to self-defense. You know, as much as you have the right to protect yourself and and take a life, if there is an intruder that is 
you know, on your property or about to harm you, you have the right to take that life. He compares abortion to that as that same fundamental right. Reagan did have a red line. The original Therapeutic Abortion Act allowed abortions if a doctor thought it likely the child would be born with a deformity. I don't see a step very far from that to someday deciding after birth that we'd sort out those people who should be allowed to live or not, Reagan said at a press conference a few weeks before signing the bill, adding, I don't see any difference between that and what Hitler tried to do. He made a condition of his signing the removal of this provision. This meant that mothers who'd taken thalidomide, like Sherry Finkbein, or those affected by the mid-60s rubella epidemic, would still not have been able to get an abortion. In the first half of 1968, with the law in place, seven times more legal abortions took place in California than before. But that number, around 2,000, was still dwarfed by the estimated number of illegal abortions. The Therapeutic Abortion Act was progress, and where California went, the nation followed. Six years later, Roe versus Wade was decided by the Supreme Court. So Idris, if we were to give a very potted history of the abortion laws in America pre-Roe, it would go something like this, I think. In the late 19th century, abortion becomes explicitly illegal in lots of states. Often that's on the insistence of doctors who sort of push for it. Um, They're worried about sort of unprofessional nurses practicing abortion and almost kind of taking, not exactly taking work away from them, but sort of lowering the status of the medical profession. So there's almost a kind of protectionist angle to that. In the 40s and 50s, you have a lot of doctors who are performing abortions in the states where they're legal being prosecuted. And almost as a reaction to that, in the 60s and then in the early 70s with Roe v. Wade, uh, you get this movement to allow women to choose, right? And then for the first time in 1973, you have what looks like a national abortion law brought in by the court. And then that's undone a year ago. And so I I wonder to what extent we are now back to the kind of pre- Roe v. Wade status quo, or whether what happens now in America in terms of the legal status of abortion is very different. What what do you think on that? I think America post-Roe looks a lot like it did pre-Roe, where states have very different conceptions of what the right limit is uh, at which abortion should no longer be legal. States in which Democrats are in charge, where voters are motivated by this issue, have uh, looser regimes than those um, run by Republicans, who many of whom have just straight up banned it, right? And in, that, and in that way, it resembles something close to the 1900s or 1800s, as opposed to just pre-Roe. It's interesting to think through whether or not the idea behind Roe to create the national federal standard ended up backfiring. And interestingly, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, the liberal justice who was on the Supreme Court for a while, seemed to veer towards that opinion herself. She gave a speech in the 1990s where she said that the, a less encompassing Roe, one that didn't make the sweeping change, one that merely struck down the extreme Texas law and went no further on that day, might have served to reduce rather than to fuel controversy. She pointed out that basically it entirely, uh, she says, entirely removed the ball from legislators' courts. And that's something that uh, conservative uh, jurists on the Supreme Court have also said, that this should have been left to the states, and perhaps this would have led to a resolution that would have been similar to Roe ultimately, 
But the idea, I think, the court had at the time was that it would work something like Brown versus Board of Education. It would permanently take off the table the idea of abortion restrictions, and that didn't end up happening. And so I wonder if we are back to the very messy process of states competing with one another to determine an abortion regime. And, you know, in that way, I think we might resemble Europe, for example, was going through similar uh, questions in the 1970s and 60s. Now, 40 or 50 years later, the right to an abortion in Europe is fairly unquestioned, but it is still open in America for, I think, a lot of these reasons. Yeah, I think that's reflected in part in the survey data now, right, Idris, where you have record high support for abortion being legal in the first three months of pregnancy, 69%, according to a Gallup survey that was conducted in May. But there's not that much support for legal abortions nationally, at least, in the second three months of pregnancy. It's only 37% and then 22% in the last three months of pregnancy. And so in some ways, you have a debate that is much more polarized than the reality of, of what Americans think on the ground, that there's some consensus actually around real support for abortion in the first three months of pregnancy and then more uh, ambivalence about what comes after. But I would note that the share who think that abortion should be legal in the last three months of pregnancy, even though that's 22 percent, it's roughly double what it was in 2011, which I think is pretty notable. And then the last thing I'd say on the polling is that I was struck that 47% of Republicans think abortion should be legal in the first trimester. That's obviously much lower than the 86% of Democrats who think that. But it's certainly not nothing. 47% is a pretty high share. This does seem like a classic case of Congress being unable to craft a national law that really reflects public opinion. As you guys have hinted, I think public opinion in America on abortion you know, despite all the culture war stuff, is in many ways not so different from where it is in the majority of Western Europe. I mean, as Idris says, in most European countries, the abortion is legal with some restrictions. There are some exceptions to that. So it's basically illegal in Poland and some other places. But if you compare the UK with America, again, broadly, people think that in the first trimester and up till some point in the second trimester, abortion should be legal with restrictions thereafter. That's fairly close to US public opinion. And so I guess it's interesting to think about the counterfactual here, whether is Idris or Justice Ginsburg perhaps was suggesting, had the court not stepped in in 1973, America might have felt its way towards a compromise of that nature and worked this out through the you know legislature, or whether in fact, given the way American politics works and the way that small groups that are highly motivated and take extreme positions are able to exercise a veto over legislation, whether actually would be where we are anyway. Okay, so so much for the history of abortion in America pre-Roe. We'll be back in a moment to visit a state that's in the midst of deciding what its abortion laws should be in the future. The Dobbs decision last year handed the regulation of abortion back to the people and their elected representatives. We've spoken about what representatives have or haven't done with that power, but in several states, the people have also had their say through referendums. Our colleague Stevie Hertz headed to Ohio, which is currently deciding whether to put the right to an abortion on the ballot. At a brewery on the outskirts of Cincinnati, just before its weekly trivia contest starts... Jade Martinez is going table to table, asking her own questions. I'm collecting signatures to get reproductive freedom on the ballot in Ohio. Are any of you interested in learning more and signing the petition? Martinez works at the American Civil Liberties Union of Ohio, an advocacy group. 
It's trying to get enough support to ensure a ballot initiative is held in Ohio in November. The campaign wants to ask voters if the state constitution should explicitly say that Ohioans have the right to, quote, reproductive freedom. That would include a right to an abortion up to viability or after where the health of the mother is at risk. If it wins, it would be binding. Do you have any questions about the amendment? Nearly all of the drinkers at the brewery already know about the amendment campaign. The only question most signers had was what the date was. To get on the ballot in November, the campaign needs to collect more than 400,000 signatures. With a few weeks left to go, Martinez is feeling optimistic. And so how many people, how many signatures are you like hoping to get this evening? This evening, I would say maybe a couple hundred. We usually average like on busy nights, I would say at least a hundred minimum on like Right now, abortion is legal in Ohio up to the middle of the second trimester, but only because a six-week ban is held up in the courts. It was active for a few weeks last summer. We know that, you know, right now that law is blocked, but our Ohio Supreme Court is Republican-controlled. And what will most likely happen when that court hears that case is that law will go back into effect. And we just can't let that happen for the people of the state of Ohio. Jamie Miracle helps lead the campaign for the amendment. Although Ohio used to be the definitive swing state, it's become pretty solidly Republican over the last few presidential elections. But the campaign isn't worried about that. We're talking to Republicans, we're talking to Democrats, we're talking to independents, and people across the board, across the political spectrum, believe that individual human beings should have the right to make their own health care decisions, and that we must not let our government decide what care a person can get and what kind of care they can't. Pro-choice campaign messaging around ideas of big government and freedom have been tried and tested elsewhere. Since the Dobbs decision last year, voters in half a dozen states, including fairly conservative ones like Kansas and Kentucky, have backed abortion rights. The wave of support and excitement is definitely on our side. And that's what we saw across the board, where abortion was on the ballot in the last year. It won in every single place, even in places like Kansas and Kentucky. And in Michigan, Ohio's big rival, A ballot initiative on a constitutional right to an abortion spurred turnout generally in November. The one thing I think you'll find when you talk to Ohioans is we like to say we're not Michigan. Amy Natoshi works for the campaign opposing the abortion rights amendment. The one thing I like to point out to people is Ohio is a very different state in terms of the electorate, um, how we've voted in recent elections, and how we're going about campaigning. We are running this campaign like a presidential-level campaign. We launched in mid-March with a $5 million ad buy statewide, and we have not stopped since. We're running digital ads. We've got canvassers all across the state knocking doors, and so we have just been working hard to get the message about this amendment out um, and why it needs to be defeated in November because it's so dangerous to Ohioans. Alongside well-trodden pro-life arguments, like over the presence of late-term abortions and the supposed absence of health and safety protections, they found another message that voters might recognize right now. If passed, this amendment will completely eviscerate parental rights. It will allow for minors to obtain abortions and even gender reassignment procedures without parental consent or notification. So it cannot be overstated how dangerous this amendment will be to the unborn, to women, and to parental rights. 
There are other debates over parents' rights happening in Ohio at the moment. Over what can be taught in schools and gender-affirming care for kids. So this argument might strike a chord. The pro-abortion rights campaign says that Ohio currently requires parental consent for a minor seeking an abortion, and that that wouldn't change. But the campaigners against the abortion amendment also have another tool, because there's another referendum in Ohio this year. Not over abortion, but over amendments themselves. If passed, it would take the margin for success from a simple majority of voters to 60%. The United States Constitution has been amended 27 times in our country's history. Ohio's Constitution has been amended 172 times and counting. And so, you know, we believe that most public policy making should happen in a legislature. But we do think that if something is going to be put in a constitution forever, it should have widespread bipartisan support. Brian Stewart sits in the Ohio State House, representing a rural area just outside Columbus. He's a Republican, and he sponsored the resolution to create the referendum over moving to the 60% threshold. If folks want to you know, use the Constitution to try to jam through controversial and in many cases kind of fringe ideas, they can attempt it. But we want to make sure that Ohioans get to decide beforehand what the rules of the game should be. In the past 15 years, two amendments have passed with less than 60% support. One from 2009 about the building of casinos and another minor one from 2015 about the laws around monopolies. But after being approved by the Republican-controlled State House last month, the question will be put before voters in August, before the abortion amendment would be. Critics have worried that turnout might be low for a special election in an off-cycle year. I, I hope it's not lower. This is not going to be a surprise to anyone. Both sides are going to campaign hard. Both sides are going to raise money and get awareness out. Anybody who wakes up on August 9th and says, oh, I didn't know there was an election, wasn't paying attention. You know, the goal is not to have it in low turnout, but frankly, I mean, that's up to the public. Shouldn't a simple majority be enough? Shouldn't that represent the will of the people? Not when it comes to a constitution. I mean, the, the, the federal constitution has always been protected by a supermajority. Uh, 32 states in America don't allow for outside constitutional amendments at all. The idea of subjecting amendments to your governing document to something more than a simple majority is an idea as old as America itself. In the abortion rights votes in Michigan, Kansas, and Kentucky last year, the pro-choice side did win, but each time with less than 60% of the vote. And in Ohio, there's limited polling so far on how the abortion amendment might do. But one poll back in October gave a theoretical abortion amendment 59% support. Idris, something we often see in American politics is when one side, either Republican or Democrat, you know, liberal or conservative, overreaches, you get a reaction in public opinion. And Charlotte alluded to this earlier when she said that support for abortion rights in America has actually increased since the Supreme Court stepped in and overturned Roe v. Wade. It's really interesting to look at how successful from a pro-choice perspective some of these referendums have been and also as Stevie pointed out there from Ohio how the pro-life side has tweaked some of its language to try and make its pitch to voters sound more appealing I mean the, the stuff about 
parental choice, parental rights in there, I found fascinating because that obviously tallies with what's been a pretty successful campaign by conservatives in schools. And they're sort of trying to tie, it seems, abortion to that that same effort, which has worked pretty well. Yeah, I think that's a clever framing for them that implicitly accepts that the straightforward cause of restricting abortion is not a popular one. We saw that last year, not only in the explicit referenda in Kansas and Kentucky, which both failed, even though they were in deeply Republican states. And interestingly, there was some uh, language choice there as well. You know, the pro-choice campaign was often couched in language of freedom and libertarian values, as opposed to straightforwardly being about abortion. But we also saw, and I think Republicans have learned the lesson, that in 2022, a lot of their failure to do very well in the midterm elections was due to the fact that abortion was such a dominant issue. And the fact that the issue was returned to the states meant that there was often an older piece of legislation that suddenly states were considering that might have the effect of banning abortion. Republicans who were running were promising to severely restrict abortion. That really hindered any ability of Republicans to get a huge advantage in in some of the states. I think that was an important lesson that we learned from there. And I imagine also that one consequence of these lawsuits which are ongoing, the fact that state legislatures are currently contemplating more limits and bans, is that it's going to be a factor in the election to come as well. And uh, that'll be a boon for Democrats uh, who rightly I think, see the public opinion is fairly on their side. Yeah, I think to underscore that, this is a classic one, I think, where the promise of future abortion restrictions was far more helpful politically than the reality of those abortion restrictions now. And you saw that, to underscore what Idris was saying, you saw that consistently in the polling in the run-up to the midterms that abortion was a, a consistently important issue for Democrats, but also that voters were more willing to compromise on a candidate's position on another issue, for instance, on the economy. But they were quite rigid in supporting only those who shared their views on abortion. And it's not surprising then that even now, senators who supported and voted for federal abortions in the past, I'm thinking of John Cornyn from Texas, a senator, for example, they don't support a federal abortion now. And they say it's an issue that's best handled by the states. And that may be because they favor state rights. It also may be because they know that pursuing a federal abortion ban at the moment would alienate far more voters than it would attract. Lindsey Graham is a lead sponsor of a ban on abortion after 15 weeks. You don't see many people lining up beside him. But it is going to be hard, I think, for Republicans to avoid this issue for the reason that we've alluded to earlier, that you have this fight in Ohio, you have DeSantis, who signed a six-week abortion ban into law this spring. There's a case on a prior law in Florida, a 15-week abortion ban that was passed in 2022. When that's decided, a six-week ban could go into effect really quickly in Florida sometime this summer. So, so yeah, it's a really live issue and not great news politically for Republicans. It's also interesting, I think, I mean, maybe it's a bit crass to talk about the politics of too, this too much when, as Charlotte began by pointing out, you know, this is a subject that has a huge effect on women's health. But nevertheless, A, we're a political podcast, and B, politics is how these changes get decided, right? So the electoral politics of it matter. I think on the Democratic side, it's really interesting, because when Roe v. Wade was in place, Democratic activists were often pushing for more liberal abortion laws and for no restrictions at all in a way that wasn't that popular either, right? And so that 
could hurt them politically. With Roe v. Wade gone, the sort of median position in the Democratic Party is, let's go back to Roe v. Wade, which sounds like a kind of conservative argument for return to the what was the status quo. In, in a sense, they're making a more conservative argument, which I think is more appealing to voters. So it both hurts, I mean, maybe this is an obvious thing to say, but it both hurts Republicans. And in a sense, it helps Democrats with their messaging, because it gives them an answer to, well, what would you like uh, instead that isn't, you know, kind of too scary, doesn't sound like too much of a change to voters, right? The other thing that's really worth keeping an eye on is the litigation that concerns access to mifepristone, which comprises half of the two drug regimen that are used to induce abortions. And there are several legal arguments cited here, but the main point is that it would severely limit access to these drugs, which, as Idris pointed out earlier, have become increasingly important, particularly in women in states that have severe abortion restrictions. And so that is perhaps among the most substantive developments that we'll see in the next year to help decipher just how broadly accessible abortions remain. Let's leave things there for now. You guys know the drill. Before I let you go, it's quiz time. So, First question for you guys. Narendra Modi, India's prime minister, is, like me, in D.C. this week. And there was a vegetarian state dinner held in his honour at the White House on Thursday evening. The first state dinner for a foreign head of state was held in 1874. It was for the king of a nation which no longer exists as a sovereign state. Which nation was it? Russia? Some nation that was subsumed within another, yeah. Something in Eastern Europe. It was indeed a nation that was subsumed within another. It was Hawaii, oh. which was then known in America as the Sandwich Islands. King David Kalakua was hosted by Ulysses S. Grant, and a 20-course menu was served. Sounds good. Yeah, that's your kind of dinner, entries. Question two. Queen Elizabeth II attended four state dinners at the White House. Can you name the presidents who hosted her? Um, JFK. Oh, no, sorry, LBJ, right? I don't think she said... I think JFK went to London. It was LBJ hosted her in in Washington, I think. Idris is smiling like he knows the answer. Uh, no, I, 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 um, I would guess Eisenhower um, as one. Okay, so let's do Eisenhower, um, Johnson. Eisenhower is definitely one of them. Um, um, We're one for four so far. I'll go with Reagan. For no reason, really. And Idris, do you want to pitch in the last one? I'll say Clinton and Bush. Bush I, is good because that gets you, you exactly. know, three terms, <laughs> right? Exactly. Non-specific Bushery. I'm just, I'm just going to to maximize space over the 20th century. Yeah, well done. That's a good strategy. So uh, both George H. W. Bush and George W. Bush. So that's two out of four. Gerald Ford did. Hmm. So the full tally is Eisenhower, Ford. George H.W. and George W. So there you go. Ronald Reagan did host Queen Elizabeth II, but it was in California rather than in the White House. So, Charlotte, I think we may be half a point for that. And the fun fact that I have for you guys is that LBJ is the only president Queen Elizabeth II didn't meet. Mm. I mean, the only president alive while she was on the throne, if you, if you know what I mean. Um, so there you go. Some LBJ trivia for you guys. I failed to keep track of the scores entirely there, but I think Probably Idris wins it by a whisker with his vague answer about the bushes. 
Okay, before we go, we have some hopefully enjoyable homework for listeners, both enjoyable and optional. Over the summer, we're going to have a Checks and Balance book club, and we'd love it if you would join in and read along with us. Charlotte Idris and John Fasman have all chosen their pick for the great American novel, and we're going to share that list with you now in case you want to read them too. Then at the end of the summer, we're going to have a podcast where we discuss their picks. Fasman has chosen Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, Charlotte and Idris, can you share your choices with our listeners? Yeah, I could have chosen about 20 different books. I was the last one to choose. For the sake of variety, I chose Edith Wharton's Age of Innocence as befits a New York bureau chief, which I am. And Idris, you can talk about your book. Um, I picked The Sound and the Fury by William Faulkner. Uh, I think a magnificent novel. It was hard to pick even which Faulkner novel to, to pick. I think he wrote As I Lay Dying in like six weeks which is kind of insane. He was a night watchman um, at an electric power plant, and then he turned out one of the greatest works of literature. Okay, so there are the three, Invisible Man, Sound of the Fury, and The Age of Innocence. So do get reading, and we'll get reading as well, and we'll discuss what we think of those books in an episode in August. You can let us know what you think of the books we've chosen and email us anything else you'd like to draw our attention to about the podcast at podcasts at economist.com we really enjoy receiving those emails so please keep them coming i'm sure there'll be an almighty argument about the books that charlotte and john and idris have chosen judging from the length of the email chain uh, where those decisions were made okay thank you charlotte thank you idris thank you thanks john this episode was produced by harriet noble and stevie hertz nico rofast is our sound engineer if you like the podcast then please do let people know and leave us a rating and a review we also have a checks and balance newsletter. You can sign up for that at economist.com slash newsletters. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. <laughs>